Hello, I'm Mary Osborne. I'm Kathy Shagrin. And I'm Stacia Matten. And we'd like to welcome you back for a second season of Prairie Tales, where each month we talk about this wonderful community we live in, Monmouth, Illinois. Mary, did you know that the city of Monmouth is the birthplace of fraternity Kappa Kappa Gamma? Well, yes, I did. Well, did you know that their mascot is an owl and the Florida is their symbol? Yes, I was aware. Did you know that the fraternity began as a desire by several local women in Monmouth to develop a women's fraternity for social development and now has 145 collegiate chapters? How do you know so much about Kappa Kappa Gamma? <laughs> well, well you know, I read it on the I read it internet. internet. Well, moving on. Each month at Prairie Tales, we bring you a little slice of history from Monmouth's past with the help of local historians. Last year, we heard from many of you who listen, and we welcome your ideas for future programs. We also would like to recognize the Buchanan Center for the Art, which sponsors our program as part of its mission to promote the art in whatever form it takes in the Monmouth area. So, are we ready to begin? Absolutely. Well, get ready because it's season two of Prairie Tales. Hello, Prairie Tales listeners. For this episode, I would like to welcome Jeff Franken to the podcast. Jeff Franken is the college editor and historian at Monmouth College. Thank you for agreeing to be on Prairie Tales today, Jeff. My pleasure, Mary. We invited you to be on this month's episode um, because we are wrapping up season two and we wanted to interview the person who really helped us get the podcast going by graciously allowing us to share your articles with a new audience. So I'd like to begin um, by asking you kind of about your blog, about your, your articles, where do you get your inspiration mm-hmm. for your topics? Right. Well, it's, it's, come about in kind of a, a long uh, winding uh, way. Um, my Just my first introduction to Monmouth history uh, began, well, probably when I was a kid, because I used to go to the library all the time and look at microfilm and geeky stuff like that. Uh, but in 1981, I just graduated from college and was back in Monmouth and we were getting ready to celebrate the sesquicentennial. And so I was fascinated by that and volunteered to edit the Centennial book. So that really got me interested and started, you know, looking at some of the resources that were available locally, uh, mostly through Ralph Eckley, who was the local historian at the time at the Review Atlas. Uh, He had wonderful files there that, uh, you know, photographs and all kinds of uh, files from 40, 50 years that he'd been doing history. So that really got me um, inspired. And then when Monmouth College uh, celebrated its sesquicentennial in in 2003, I was asked to edit uh, the the sort of coffee table book that was issued in in conjunction with that. So that got me more interested in Monmouth College history. Although I had been kind of doing Monmouth College history uh, before that, uh, when when we had our first uh, woman president, Sue Houston, in 1994, one of her challenges that she really wanted to take on was to create community, and she wanted to uh, resurrect a lot of the old traditions that had been lost. Uh, one of those we just experienced that was the walkout, and I was responsible for getting that uh, resurrected after an absence of 20-some years. 
And it's become, uh, again, sort of an, an annual event that people look forward to. Um, but anyway, she kind of tasked me with trying to do an annual talk to our students about traditions at the college. And uh, so that, that all just kind of uh, merged well together as far as my history of, of the city and then the college. And then, um, so I, you know, I just kind of, uh, when Facebook sort of took off, um, you know, there was a, as many cities have a local history kind of Facebook page. And I kind of got pulled into that and started answering people's questions and posting photographs and all that sort of thing. Then eventually that inspired me to create my own local uh, Facebook page, which was called Photographic Memories of the Maple City or Monmouth, because for what the main reason was I wanted to draw out photographs that, that people had been uh, having in their attics or whatever that had never been seen before. So that was the motivation there. Uh, then um, about, I think it was 2016, popular columnist for the Review Atlas, Dick Bowman, uh, died suddenly, unfortunately, and he, you know, he did a popular weekly column, and so the Review Atlas asked if I would be willing to take on a column of my choosing, <laughs> and uh, they suggested a local history column, and I was pretty reluctant, but I said, well, I'll think about it. And, you know, when I did finally agree to do it with the blessing of uh, Dwayne Bonifer at Monmouth College, uh, I thought, well, this is interesting, but I don't know how long I can maintain this because they have to be illustrated with photographs generally. And, you know, there, there's a limited number of, of uh, you know, resources available. I can't imagine that I could do it for more than several weeks without running out of material. Uh, that uh, somehow it just kept, uh, it kept, I don't know, um, things, things just kept coming my way. I don't know how or why. Um, but I think what really made the difference was digital newspaper archives. That allows you to, to search using keywords through old newspapers. And so that also allowed me to, I think, turn up bits of information and put together stories that would have been impossible before when you would have to like go uh, load a, a reel of microfilm and read it on an old uh, rickety reader and try to find <laughs> a particular page. And it was just, you know, impossible. But all of a sudden with digital age, um, it was at, at your fingertips. So that really um, made things all of a sudden really fascinating because there were all these stories I could do, you know, I would just sort of uh, scan some of these newspapers and I'd, I'd come across some headline or something that was intriguing that I had never heard of. And then I would become fascinated that I wanted to investigate it. So that kind of uh, was the, the basis for my weekly column, uh, trying to come up with things that maybe Ralph Eckley had never covered, you know, in, in his many years um, that were kind of intriguing or, you know, uh, the ones that were always the most interesting were the ones about murders or fallacious <laughs> <laughs> stuff. Uh, but, you know, but that was fun. So um, then uh, in conjunction with the college, I, I was doing, you know, several uh, pieces 
related to Monmouth College history as well as local history. And it was suggested that I start a medium.com uh, page, which would be just sort of a, an ongoing blog. Um, and so that happened. And, it, and not long after that, uh, Prairie Radio Communications asked if they could do something with uh, my column or, or my information. So I agreed to do um, a radio program based on that. And um, so that, that's kind of how everything has sort of snowballed and, and continues to, uh, to be that way. You know, what started out I thought would be maybe several weeks or, or six months, uh, now we're into about our sixth year. So who knows how much longer that can continue. In your role as college historian and also um, just as the author of this this regular column, have you ever been asked to cover a topic that you could not find enough information about? Yes, uh, definitely that's the case. And uh, there have been some columns where I didn't think I could, but given uh, enough sort of just determination, I was able to pull pull together some information that I had never uh, heard before. Uh, but there, and, and there are also things that I have avoided. Uh, one of those would be uh, the Richard Speck uh, uh, murders uh, because it's a painful topic and there are uh, living relatives in the area. So I just don't want to get into that. But there are there are things that um, continue to puzzle me, <laughs> and, I, and I'm not sure offhand if I can uh, name specific things. But there are there are these ongoing mysteries, and some of them are, you know, they're not like major things, but they're things that I would just love to find out. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of them has to do with Monmouth College uh, athletic history. And there used to be a place called North Prairie before we had athletic fields where all of the uh, athletic contests, the early football, baseball were held. Um, plus our students uh, who, who were required to take surveying uh, went to North Prairie to practice their, their art of surveying. And I have never been able to find out where North Prairie was specifically other than it was North of Monmouth, because everybody called it North Prairie. They didn't, you know, say where it was. So, right. they, you know, things like that. Uh, also, the uh, Hardin's Hall was uh, one of our early auditoriums that, uh, before we had an opera house, and a lot of noted people spoke there from Mark Twain to Frederick Douglass. And I think I've got a good idea where it was. I think it was on the second floor of what's now the Woodshed Tavern, uh, but again, there's no just you know no um, definitive data anywhere that where I can actually say yes for sure this is where it was. So those little things just continue to to, to bother me. <laughs> but but uh, you know, but there are there are some bigger ones. One of the ones that took a while to really put together was the uh, the art the mad arsonist of 1963 who burned down all of the lumber yards. And it's still a mystery. We don't, the person was never arrested. You know, there was just so many rumors and details and things that it was just kind of hard to draw those all into something cohesive, but I I did. And the other one um, that I did some on, but it's still a mystery, is the Dawson murders of 1911 uh, when the family was bludgeoned with a pipe and it was also 
presumed to be an axe murder. Um, they, nobody was ever caught. Well, somebody went to jail for it, but it was probably not the guilty party and um, did, a, did a column about it. But again, there's so many unanswered questions that uh, I, I don't know if they'll ever be answered at this, this point in, in history. With your historical research, I know that requires you to think creatively and think outside the box when looking for new types of sources. Could you describe um, your research process? I know this probably will be really interesting <laughs> to our listeners, but it's interesting yeah. to all us, all of us history geeks yeah. out here. So. Right. And, and that, that's one thing that's a bit of a regret in, in the, uh, trying to put together a weekly column. Um, I can't really do proper historical research and annotation and everything like that, which I wish I had had done <laughs> because a lot of my sources, they're just fleeting. I don't have full files on, on all my research, but I just go everywhere I can possibly think of. And a lot of, um, I think one of my favorite sources, and it has been since I was a little kid, was the uh, old timer columns done by Hugh Rob Moffat uh, in the Review Atlas. He was the really the founder of the Review Atlas. And then uh, as an older gentleman, he wrote a daily history column. And he, he pulled these all into notebooks um, and they, they were done chronologically so that you'd have, you'd have like the year 1864 and it would be he'd go through each each day's papers and pull out information, and then he would do a handwritten index uh, in that, so you could kind of go and, and look th things up. And I know Ralph Eckley uh, relied on him a lot, but you know partly because he lived much of that history. He was uh, you know um, working on the the Review Atlas uh, in the late nineteenth century, so I. I that's always a, a great thing. I also use a lot of uh, city directories, which are uh, not a, not very complete. There are certain years uh, we have that that are helpful in trying to figure out where people lived and what where things were located. And um, then I also, uh, I mean, I, I rely an awful lot on digital uh, newspapers, whether it's whether it's local. And there, there are probably six or seven different uh, local papers that, that have existed over time that are available in limited uh, years and, and dates. Um, and there are also the Monmouth College uh, student newspapers are available. But I also use national um, uh, newspapers, digital, uh, when I'm trying to find maybe trends or historical things that were happening at the same time that would explain why something was happening locally, uh, you know, or just to add to the, the story of, to make it more interesting, uh, look at the sort of the macro rather than the micro uh, aspects. Um, so those are some of the things. I, my biggest challenge is always photographs and finding good ones is, is just like, uh, it's crazy, and sometimes that's where I start. Like if I if I find a, a a good photograph, then I'll try to do a story around it. But I've also uh, been very fortunate because uh, Donna Hallam, who's the daughter of uh, Chuck Hallam, who used to be the Monmouth editor of the Rock Island Argus, uh, kept uh, wonderful scrapbooks for 
uh, of all of his mindless stories going from like, I think 1951 through the early 19, well, through the early 80s, I believe. And I still have those. Eventually, I'm going to get them to the library. But uh, the, he did a wonderful job of covering Monmouth in addition to what the Review Atlas covered. Um, and sometimes better because he, he did more uh, feature stories uh, than was done you know, in the 1960s in the, early, the old linotype version of the Review Atlas. And then also when the Review Atlas uh, sold its, its office uh, in Monmouth, they had bound editions um, going back to the early, well, a little bit before the, the, the paper was purchased in 1976. And so I rescued those and those are now in the genealogy room in the library. And those, those are really great because we don't have like microfilm of all, all of those years, but it's, but even so, I so much prefer having down copies to microfilm because it's just so much easier to, to access. And I also like it better than digital because you can like flip through pages so much easier and read about well, what happened the next day and, and all that sort of thing. Uh, now the early Review Atlas, the Review Atlas and Review Atlas uh, bound editions, I believe are still in the archives at Western Illinois University, which is great that they, suppose, I believe they are still there, uh, that they've been preserved. But you know, eventually, uh, boy, it would be great if those things could get digitized. I'd probably take a grant from somebody to do that. But uh, there's so many, uh, I mean, the University of Illinois uh, has a digital archive that includes a lot of the Monmouth papers mm -hmm. that you don't have to pay for. Um, but again, it's, it's, it's spotty. It doesn't include every year. And most of that ends in about 1929, 1930. So there's not, so it's difficult to reconstruct after that. Although there are some like Galesburg Register Mail and, and Rock Island, Argus and Burlington Hawkeye uh, issues uh, years uh, after that, which are useful because a lot of times they covered Monmouth. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's true of some of the papers in Macomb mm -hmm. too, uh, or even before the coverage of the Warren County papers. I know I've used that to track uh, Judge Stewart's family because yep. um, they'll show up in, in some of the McDonough County papers. That's right. Um, so I want to go back to um, a comment you made about Mr. Moffat, um, which is it's a great segue into the um, some of my other questions. A few months ago, maybe even a year ago now, I was doing some research about the Wallace family because members of the family either worked for um, the Stewarts in some capacity, they're like the the Weir, well, at the Weir Pottery, and and then here at the house. And I was looking into, especially I was trying to track Ida and Myrtle Wallace. And so I went uh, to the college library and I was looking at all of Mr. Moffat's uh, work that he had done on African-American history. And I had no idea his, I didn't know about his background. So that makes perfect sense now. But I was wondering if you could, have you, have you ever researched the, the history of um, African-American population in Monmouth? If you could talk a little bit about that. I hadn't much until recently, and, and um, as people have probably heard, we had our summer research project that looked into the early African-American community in Monmouth, 
which we're calling the Champion Miller Project, uh, which did include the Wallaces. And uh, anyway, um, just to give some explanation, if people aren't aware, um, our director of uh, diversity and inclusion at Monmouth, uh, Regina Johnson, is a Monmouth alumna. And she, uh, as a student, and she's of mixed race heritage, uh, she did not really want to do uh, the, the type of historiography project uh, under Professor Bill Urban that uh, traditionally are done. She wanted something that would focus on Monmouth's uh, African-American heritage. So that was, she was granted that. And so she started delving into it as much as she could, which wasn't exactly easy, but she did uncover the story of Champion Miller. And um, he was born into slavery in Barron County, Kentucky in 1808, came to Monmouth in 1856 and was taught to read and write by none other than Hugh Rob Moffat's father, <laughs> William T. Moffat, who was a student at the uh, Monmouth, uh, it was called the, the United Presbyterian uh, Seminary, Theological Seminary of the Northwest, which was located in Monmouth for a number of years. But in, from 1858 to 1860, uh, Mr. Moffat taught Champion Miller how to read and write. And he became one of Monmouth's really respected citizens, along with the founder of, Mon or the founding president of Monmouth College, David Wallace, uh, helped uh, create the first African church of Monmouth, which later became Fourth Presbyterian Church. And he later, when that closed, he joined uh, the First Presbyterian Church. Uh, so, but anyway, uh, we this past spring, we named the building uh, the center on campus in his honor. And, the, but the whole challenge was to try to track down more information on Champion Miller. And because we have no photo of him, we have uh, research, uh, you know, we, we know uh, more about his siblings than we do about him directly. But anyway, his, uh, his brother is the one we've kind of focused on. We did a three week uh, uh, history uh, sort of project uh, that's actually continuing. But his brother, Richard Murphy, also came from Kentucky and he married uh, Harriet Wallace. And that's when the Wallace family <laughs> ended up coming to, to Monmouth. And, but there's so many interesting stories uh, regarding the Murphys. And that's why we think this will be an ongoing project because we were, were only able to scratch the surface um, on uh, trying to get the genealogy. I mean, our ultimate goal is to find some living descendants so we can sort of piece things together better. But what's fascinating about um, Richard Murphy is he he came uh, his his original uh, master was named uh, Henry Haley, and um, he then he sold uh, or somehow uh, his uh, well his next master became this this uh, William Murphy, and and the, but the Murphy family had started out like in South Carolina. They were Baptist preachers and they were very well known um, and uh, really uh, create, I think they, they started like 30 congregations throughout Virginia and the Carolinas uh, and they were known as the Murphy Boys. 
and they gradually made their way west and they were very uh, big into uh, uh, emancipation. And so when they were in Kentucky, it was getting a little too, they, they just didn't like the way things were getting. So I think that's what drove them west to eventually Monmouth. Um, and anyway, Henry Haley came to Monmouth and we found he is now, he is buried in Pioneer Cemetery. So, uh, and of course, Richard Murphy and his wife, Hattie, are in Monmouth Cemetery. But the thing interesting about Richard, he, he was emancipated by uh, his master uh, and uh, actually took over a farm, which was by Ormondi um, along where the Santa Fe Railroad ran. And so he was one of our early, uh, you know, Fairly, fairly successful farmers for an African-American at the time was, was unusual. But anyway, I mean, there's just so much material to cover and to un unearth. And so, you know, it's something that's just gonna take years probably to, to pull it all together. But uh, that my ultimate hope is that we can really start to put down on paper the history of the early uh, African-American families in Monmouth and how they came here, because there are, early connections uh, among most of them. And, um, but just fascinating. And so I don't know where, where we were before, before that, uh, what, what your original question was, but I think you had mentioned something about um, the recent um, project to erect a, a headstone for Champion Miller. Yes. I don't know if that's what we wanted to talk about, but. Mm -hmm. Again, uh, it took quite a bit of doing as far as research. We were trying to locate any remnant of, of Richard uh, or of, uh, of uh, Champion and his family. Uh, we were able to determine he was buried in Monmouth Cemetery, as was his wife, uh, Judah. And he actually went down to Missouri after he came to Monmouth. He had uh, people had somehow helped him financially. He went down to Missouri and bought the freedom of his wife uh, for $800, as well as his son, William, um, and brought them to Monmouth. William actually enlisted in the Civil War and died in Arkansas in a, in a Union hospital. And that's another thing I'm trying to track down, uh, a lot of dead ends trying to find out what you know where he was buried and that sort of thing. But anyway, um, we do have evidence. We, we know for sure that Champion is buried in Monmouth Cemetery. We know where. Uh, we have evidence that, that his uh, daughter, granddaughter, and, uh, and wife are buried there too. But only, I think we only have actual written evidence that his granddaughter is buried there. So anyway, but we know where that is, but it's not marked and it wasn't owned by the Miller family somehow, and that's another mystery, uh, the Schwab family, Tilbury family uh, owned the lot and, and why they agreed to uh, have uh, the Millers buried there. Perhaps it was a, they were church members or something that uh, donated the land. But anyway, uh, we, you know, there was no marker for this remarkable family. And so that was, it's become sort of my mission to, uh, to get, get a proper uh, headstone erected there. About how long did it take you to raise the, the sum? Uh, not very long. Um, we, we have about 75 donors 
we've raised over $3,300 and it took about two weeks. <laughs> so uh, using GoFundMe. So um, that, I mean, again, that's something you couldn't have done probably 10, 15 years ago. Uh, what, what to me was most gratifying is even though this is somewhat of a Monmouth College related project, most of those donors were not Monmouth College, either alumni or, or staff. They were local people who are just, you know, really intrigued by the story and really think it's an important uh, thing that we need to uh, start to really recognize uh, uh, this, this contributions of this man and, and all of the people of his contemporaries that struggled in Monmouth in that time but also really helped to build the community. When do you expect uh, for the headstone to be um, installed? Uh, the hope is that it will probably be installed next spring and there'll be like some kind of dedication ceremony mm -hmm. at some point. Um, my, I, my idea is that it will be done uh, through Monmouth College, like the donations will be transferred to the college so that it can be done sort of as an official uh, thing that will, that can be done in conjunction with our Champion Miller Center to help kind of strengthen that, um, the, the, the recognition about that building and also maybe serve as a, a location for future like annual um, ceremony, that sort of thing. Um, and, you know, and, and we're also interested, there are a number of really interesting African-Americans buried in the cemetery, and we'd like to somehow begin to link their stories together. Maybe we could have medallions struck, kind of like Kappa Kappa Gamma yeah. did on the founder's grave that would uh, be, be put on the graves, and then we could do some sort of a walking tour that would uh, explain uh, their role in the community. One, one guy that's really fascinating to me is his name was Levi Marlowe, and he was born into slavery. Uh, he served in the Civil War, and he actually fought at the Battle of the Crater, and a bullet went right through him, and eventually that is what killed him, but not for many years. But he was the custodian at Monmouth College, the one that stoked the fires and in, in Old Maine, and a uh, very beloved uh, uh personality on campus but you know the bravery he, he experienced in his life is mm -hmm. just unbelievable and and he's buried there and he does have a, a union soldier uh, stone there by his grave um, so you know that, that's that's just one of I know there's there's several that are worthy of of being recognized and um, so I'm hoping you know champion Miller will be sort of the just the starting point for, for trying to recognize what these people did. For our listeners out there who maybe want to learn more about this topic, about this history, are there any books or articles that you would suggest that they find? Right, well, um, there so happens uh, just recently, uh, Monmouth Walgreens uh, put on sale a book that was put together about uh, African-Americans in Western Illinois that was done uh, through Western Illinois University uh, research. And so that's available for purchase. And it does give a really nice, interesting uh, overview of uh, the history of slavery and the Underground Railroad and um, early life in, in uh, Warren Henderson, uh, Knox, um, and um, McDonough counties. 
Um, so, I mean, that, you know, if anybody just wants to kind of get an overview, I think that's great. Uh, Knox College also has its Underground Railroad Museum, which uh, Owen Milder is head of, and uh, our students went over there and, and uh, learned a lot from him. Um, so that that's kind of a fascinating thing. We also took a day trip to uh, Cedar Rapids. There's the uh, African American Museum of Iowa there, and they have some interesting exhibits. Um, and then, you know, there are other things like the Lovejoy House in, in Princeton, which was a stop on the Underground Railroad. So, I mean, there, there are a lot of kind of uh, day trips and things you could, you could go to. But um, we're hoping that this project, you know, yields some, whether it's, you know, a, a book or uh, some kind of maybe a website or something that uh, we, that will begin to fill out some of this uh, sort of, uh, un, unwritten history, and and really, we were hoping to gather photographs. We did find a photograph of uh, Harriet Wallace uh, as an old older woman, and um, found one of William Murphy, who was the, the man that that uh, freed um, uh, Richard Murphy. Um, there's also some kind of really interesting early on, uh, and actually Richard Murphy was one of the earliest settlers in, in Monmouth. He came here in 1833. Um, but also there were a number of other early slaves that were freed here. And you know, one of the, the ones I found fascinating was this woman named Venus McCormick. And she was owned in Virginia by the father of Cyrus McCormick, the, the reaper <laughs> uh, inventor. And she married this man named Caesar Love, who was a cook at Garrison's Inn here in Monmouth, and they were married there. She is buried it's at uh, at uh, Sugar Tree Grove Cemetery along with uh, a child. Um, and then there were uh, about uh, eight young African American women that were had been slaves that were brought here by a guy named Neil Ro Rogers. And in the 1830s, he uh, freed them. He went to the county commissioners. And, and in those days, you had to post bonds so that these freed slaves could not become a burden on the county. Mm -hmm. So he posted a $1,000 bond for each of those eight uh, young women. Uh, one of them was under 18. So uh, he agreed to put her under indenture for a year until she was uh, of age. Um, but, you know, it's just pretty remarkable um, in those early days that, uh, you know, people would come here to, it was really the, the raw prairie, there wasn't much here, but they were really interested in giving these uh, former slaves a life. <laughs> well, now that you've raised the money for the headstone and, you know, looking forward to the spring, um, but what's what's next for you? What projects do you have in the works right now? That kind of remains to be seen, but uh, I definitely want to continue uh, this research because there are so many uh, open ends. I don't know for sure with the uh, status of, of local newspapers and that thing, that sort of thing, how long my my newspaper column may continue. That's that's something that's somewhat up in the air. Um, but I am hoping upon retirement that I can start to take some of those columns and pull them together into book, a book or books, um, because I think there's definitely a market out there. People 
want those things like as Christmas gifts. I'm always being asked, are you ever going to do that? So, I, so I'm hoping it, my idea is that I would uh, do themed books, you know, some uh, something on industry, something on people, something on uh, crimes or, you know, something like that. So, you know, that's, that's sort of a long-term thing um, that I, I'm thinking of. Um, I'm also interested in local preservation, putting up sign, historical markers. One thing that was suggested, there was a beautiful entry gate at one time to the Monmouth Cemetery that's been long gone. And wouldn't it be cool to raise money to have that thing reconstructed? To, you know, because it's a very historic cemetery. There are some really remarkable people buried there, including the great Nicola and, yeah. uh, you know, Ralph Greenleaf, the billiards champion. And, um, it, you know, it, it's a museum in itself. And of course, the Kappa and Pi Phi founders and, and that sort of thing. So it'd be kind of neat to give it a little more, I don't know, distinction and <laughs> distinctiveness. Mm -hmm. so, yeah. Well, uh, thank you so much for agreeing to be on the podcast and taking time out of your busy schedule. I know you're you're in demand. <laughs> so that wraps up season two. Season three of Prairie Tales will begin in October. So please look for the link to the next episode in the BCA Members Mosaic on its social media or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you and see you in October. And that, friends, is where this tale ends. Prairie Tales is a production of the Buchanan Center for the Arts in Monmouth, Illinois. If you enjoyed our podcast, look for more content on Instagram at Buchanan Center and on Facebook at BCA Monmouth. Email us with questions and suggestions for future episodes at prairietalespodcast at gmail.com. Remember, not all history is found in a book. Sometimes it's found in the stories we tell. Just listen to the sound of the prairie, and you too might hear a tale.